Hello and welcome to the VZ View. This is my uh, regular podcast where I analyse the uh, collision, if you like, between technology and public policy. I go and visit countries virtually like Israel, France, Holland, Estonia and find out what they're doing. I take deep dives into particular sectors like agritech or cybersecurity. I talk to policy thinkers like Tony Blair or Benedict Evans. And I'm delighted today that I'm talking to Tim Davey, recently appointed as the BBC's Director General, i.e. Chief Executive. He's running, as it were, one of the biggest media companies in the UK. And I want to talk to him about how technology is changing the media industry and what the implications are, perhaps, for a public service broadcaster. Now, I've known Tim for a long time, and I hope this introduction he doesn't take amiss, but he did work for Procter & Gamble before he joined the BBC. And although he's worked at the BBC for 15 years, he still, to me, feels like an outsider. And I mean that as a compliment, because I think that the appointment of Tim as Director General of the BBC, the reason I got excited and the reason I think it's interesting is I think he will still, despite having been at the BBC for 15 years, bring fresh eyes to what is a very challenging situation, given the rapid changes in technology. I think he will look at things afresh and try and look at how he can do things differently as the BBC competes with the huge, big tech platforms. And that's what I want to focus uh, our podcast on. So welcome, Tim. Hello. Lovely to be here, Ed. So I wanted to sort of start really, uh, I'll go back to my introduction as it were, but I was going on so long I wanted to say hello, but I just want to say <laughs> that the BBC is responsible for many firsts. In fact, it was in fact the world's first regular television service. You've got a replica of the microphone used in the famous film, The King's Speech, which is about King George VI learning to give public speaking uh, speeches because he had a stutter. And that reminds me, of course, that in 1937, the BBC was responsible for the first close-talking microphone, whatever that is. The noise-cancelling ribbon microphone. Look, look what an expert this guy is already. There you go. We're very proud of it, Ed. 1940s FM radio, 1950s transatlantic television transmission, 1960s Europe's first colour television service, digital radio, the iPlayer, of course, which the founder of Netflix, Reed Hastings, said was effectively the inspiration for... Netflix, but as I say, now in a massive competitive world. I guess my first question is one of those kind of big opening questions, Tim, which is, you know, kind of what is tech doing to your job as you try and manage the BBC? I was going to say transition to digital, but the BBC is kind of digital, but you're still having to keep a foot in the analog world. What are the big challenges, the overview of what tech is doing to your organization? I mean, I suspect, Ed, you probably cover this in a lot of the podcasts you're doing and the discussions because this is an industry where so much was bound up in fixed distribution. Bluntly, it's all the old cliches. What, what IP brings and what a new digital age brings is a sudden massive transference of power between the broadcaster and some of this old language is interesting in itself, isn't it? You know, the broadcaster versus we've got now an incredibly empowered household individual where suddenly that you know it, it is absurd really if you think about it as we as we look at the big trends that when you and i were growing up you know 
with those videotapes. It's all the old cliches, and it's absolutely, if you talk to London taxi drivers down there, they will they have the same issue, which is suddenly from this built-in advantage of limited distribution, so analog frequency, linear channels, that security, that default audience, if I may. I mean, we never put out bad programs on the, programs on the BBC, as you know it, but let's just say when you've got four channels and no ability to catch up, you get a default audience. And so scale, delivering at scale becomes a massive question. And instead of re- being reliant on scale through distribution advantage, you're now having to roll up, generate scale through different advantages like personalization, look at the beasts of uh, global beasts and what they're doing. And I think that's a huge, huge cultural shift, technical shift for an organization like the BBC. It, it is absolutely massive, but it also, to a certain extent, brings some advantages in the sense that you can now reach audiences that you couldn't reach before. So you can go global, you can go international, you can get people. Totally. And how does that change how you think about the BBC? You're absolutely right, because it's that classic case when you're in a, 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 an organisation, I'm sure many people listening have got businesses that have existed for a long time. And, and it's that classic executive chart, isn't it, about threats and opportunities. But I think there are huge opportunities to do two things, two bigger things for the BBC, let alone we could come onto the R&D side and the production side, the technical side, and how much value we can bring through new technology there. And there's, there's huge amounts on that, and we can come to that. But in terms of the ability for people to, you know, slightly pretentious language, but extract value from us can be transformed through technology. And the issue is the migration path to these wide broad, from this wide broadcast to that value extraction. And let me explain what I mean by that is globally, of course, that enables us to create, instead of just pushing our programming out through channels on third parties, it does begin to allow us to operate successful, profitable, direct-to-consumer businesses. And we're on the foothills of that. The issue is, you know, we're subscale in some ways. We're a big beast, but we're sub... So, but choosing things like the brick box in the US, other things, technology opens up a direct dialogue. We're already saying, okay, what would it look like in terms of news? Could we have more, you know, direct individual relationships in terms of direct to consumer on some of the things the BBC is powerful for? And then, of course, within the UK, iPlayer, BBC Sounds are big online products. It's almost mind blowing the possibilities. We talk, you know, we're already talking about, you know, how localized the iPlayer could be, how news is integrated. You know, we're not trying to beat Netflix. We're trying to offer something different, and technology can enable that. It's, it's really exciting, actually, if we can get our data and our personalization working in the right way. Well, that is a brilliant segue to my next question, because I had actually written down, obviously, because I'm such a thoughtful and intelligent person, I'd written down this incredibly subtle question, which is iPlayer versus Netflix. Yeah, anyone with even a passing knowledge would see as the kind of great contrast. So, I mean... To put it in slightly crude terms, you know, the iPlayer was the forerunner of Netflix and Netflix has obviously overtaken the iPlayer in some respects and capital investment is part of the story behind that in terms of what the capital that Netflix can deploy behind its streaming service. But uh, I'm really intrigued by what you said about you don't see, and I think this is a good thing, the iPlayer is a direct competitor of Netflix. You've got to do different things. You're the BBC and the Netflix and Netflix is Netflix. But you know, I, I always dine out on the fact that every dinner I did in the 2000s, it took five minutes before people started complaining about the size of the BBC. And then in 2010, it kind of shifted. And it was five minutes before people started complaining about the size of Google. So 
Netflix is, to a certain extent, your existential crisis in terms of technology. I'm not sure in terms of technology. That, that would be a debate. I mean, we, 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 by the way, Netflix is a great partner to us. Uh, in, in this weird world that we live in, you know, if you talk to Reed and, and, and Ted and the people running Netflix, they are brilliant working with us on shows like Dracula or whatever, and we'll work together and carving up rights, co-productions together. This is, all, this is all how this industry works, as you know, only too well. So sometimes these pantomime kind of oppositions are slightly more complex. There are levels of threat, though, in terms of being a local player with global, a global footprint versus a truly huge, hugely capitalized global operation. And I'm not being naive about this, We've, but we have competed with ITV and partnered with them for many years. Yeah. We, and in my household, as, and I'm sure you recognize this, often it can be Fortnite or other things that are offering the biggest competitor for a certain amounts of time or YouTube. We're very lucky in the BBC to have that scale and that intervention to have a really big, meaningful share in iPlayer. And actually, our reach numbers are growing as the BBC, where they're holding up. I mean, I won't give you all the BBC propaganda, but it's pretty good. I think the, the, the battleground for us with Netflix, for what it's worth, is projects and talent. I would list higher than technology. Essentially, this game is not that complicated. If you've got the shows, you do okay. Yeah, I mean, my, there's a question of what you keep and the rights you keep for how long you keep in the UK, but that, that kind of works. On the technical side, I do think we have a battle. You know, the degree of algorithmic intelligence and database decision-making and we can talk about this, but in the BBC, what's fascinating is I'm, I'm probably not going to compete with having 3,000 engineers, all of that. But I think we can, with our heritage and our partnerships and our scale, be competitive in that area. And what we're not trying to do is ho- become wholly algorithmic. I think what's fascinating about this industry is this balance between not just trying to get revenue out of each customer, but also we have a curatorial role. What are the best shows? The news headlines are not just driven by, are you a Chelsea fan? I know, I, I forget, but, uh, you know, but what your low, you know, the Ed Vasey news stream, maybe not quite what you want from the BBC. You also want to know what our newsroom thinks of the top story, you know, uh, and, and all of that. So I think we need to, ban- we don't need to replicate wholly the technical solutions on things that like I play. We need to find solutions for the BBC without bespoking everything that will come at too great a cost. We've got to be better partners. So that's interesting. So you, I mean, I'm the one in the sin bin because I sort of dragged you off on the sort of iPlayer versus Netflix instead of saying how you might use technology within the iPlayer. You talked about localization, the ability to localize. And again, when I said earlier, there are opportunities in this technology landscape of reaching a global audience. There are also opportunities in terms of knowing your audience. And it's interesting that balance you have to strike. And I completely agree with you between knowing a lot more about Ed Vasey's viewing habits but also recognizing that Ed Vasey from his BBC wants you know, to be told what the news headlines are, not just yeah. what Chelsea's latest signings are. There's national events on there, Ed. There's things you do. So it's not wholly, I mean, we all have that sense of where we're in a wholly algorithmic environment. It can work for us in certain ways, shopping, other things. But in viewing and curatorial matters and content and news coverage, there's other elements. To play. And I think that that is a really interesting technical challenge for us in creatively led businesses. How do you balance the pure algorithm? I mean, and by the way, we're right at it. I mean, I think the BBC can be proud of its technical history. I think, we, I think as you say, I've been pushing quite hard on the use of proper data science in the BBC, really understanding that degree of personalization. But the outputs from that, 
might be slightly different to just pushing the hit. I mean, obviously the hit shows and everything else, but that idea of localization, that idea of understanding, you know, match the day when Chelsea are featured, we begin to understand, we can offer up things that may be slightly different to other players because of what our offer is. Because at our heart, I think what digital and, and the technology has to do is go and, and kind of increase the potency of the core of the operation, not try to make it something different. So in some ways, I want to be, I want to use technology to make us more BBC rather than more US player. And I've got nothing against US global players. Love them to bits. We're just not one. Slightly random question which popped into my head as you were talking. Do, do you know, what, what do you know about the BBC viewer now through technology that perhaps you didn't know two or three years ago? Well, the truth is in a linear environment, you don't know much. But in terms of iPlayer downloads and so on, you must... Now I've got some iPlayer, I've got iPlayer download data. I've got what gets streamed into a household. I mean, I've got, I'm beginning to get quite a lot of data in terms of what I can use. By the way, I think there's some questions for us in terms of things like, you know, again, in a commercial world, sign-in may be obvious for everywhere. For us, we also are universally funded. We're blessed with this strange, but I think rather wonderful method of funding, which is £159 from every household in the UK. Obviously, we're commercially externally. So for those listeners, uh, you know, we're a £5 billion operation, but £3.7 billion of that is from the licence fee. And it's, a, it's an incredible privilege. So you're trying to not create too many barriers and sign in. Yeah, there has to be access to that. That's going to be a real balance for the BBC. I mean, how much is signed in for, how much is personalised? And we, we're just going to navigate that on our own course. But I am beginning to get more, much more personalised data. We can go further, a lot further, by the way. I, we could disappear down the rabbit hole of how much further you can go with iPlayer data. But I want to cover a, quite a lot of topics. So, you know, I think it's the, the great strength of the BBC is its radio. And it doesn't, I don't think, gets enough attention from policymakers, particularly when, you know, obviously the BBC is a political football to a certain extent. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. But people tend to, when they argue about the BBC, argue on the basis of whether they enjoy Strictly or not without appreciating the amazing audio input. Now, you've got BBC Sounds now, which is kind of, uh, w- which is an app and you can access podcasts and all the radio channels that, again, I've written down in my crude, non-intelligent way, Sounds versus Spotify. What is what does the app Sounds do? What is the future of audio? What does that app tell you? We've got this big issue, whether we move to digital radio, we've got the thought that actually most of us will be listening on our phones through an app called BBC Sounds. You've got Clubhouse sort of coming in and making everyone say, well, what is the future of audio? Does Clubhouse change the future of audio? How are you thinking about how technology is changing the future of audio? It's hugely kind of revolutionary what's going in my... Uh, sorry, that's, a, that's clunky words, but... No, it, no, that's good. We like that. It's hugely... It's, it's big because, again, it's this choice thing, isn't it? You and I know that Probably we were listening to the charts. I can see myself recording <laughs> yeah. with the old, you know, those old cassettes in my bedroom, you know. Absolutely. And now I've got a device, you know, I'm sorry, everyone knows this, but I've got a little device that's got every song in the world I can listen to. Right? It's got every video in the world. Um, I've got free access, by the way, to a lot of music as well, let alone Spotify. And then you've got brilliant, actually, algorithmic technology in Spotify. I mean, I think they do. A, we've got to recognize the strengths there. I mean, you know, um, by the way, their family subscription now costs more than the whole BBC, just in terms of uh, part of political broadcast at that point, Ed. But it's, look, this then gets you to a classic. It's an, it's, it's a, it, again, it's very obvious, which is we can't do everything. So the question is, you're not going to be in a world where it's, you're wholly going to be Spotify or 
wholly, you know, BBC. We're always going to have, there's going to be different things for different occasions. The BBC just needs to be differentiated. So where do you go with that? You inevitably go to our talent, our curation. Look, live is a wonderful thing. I don't go to Spotify to listen to football commentaries. I don't go to Spotify to hear breaking news. We're still here. I mean, and you know, Ed, that we, we are bonded on this and have spent a lot of time together working on the radio market. That connection with radio, that personalised, I mean, think about our local radio services. I was in Radio Manchester the other day. The way they're talking about what they've done during the COVID crisis, talking to people, community involvement, radically different. And the other thing is, look, algorithms can serve up quite well new music, but if I plug a show for BBC, don't listen to, if you're in the UK, Keris Matthews on Six Music. It's not an algorithmic play. It is curated. It takes, it zigzags. It goes on different angles. There's got to be value for that in life. It can't all be wholly rationalised. And I think there's, there's probably space for both. Last point, Ed, I think this may all be a small conversation based on where we're heading because we may well be sitting in cars with visual screens. Mm. You know, I think radio has really benefited, obviously, from situations. It's beautiful because I can cook and listen to the radio, but there's no doubt about it. I think one of the big threats to audio is how do we cope in environments where traditionally you've had things like the car. If we are moving really to driverless car, Waze tells you the drive is 22 minutes. You can get some video for 22 minutes. How can we make sure audio and the preciousness of audio is preserved in that? I'm as worried about that as I'm about, frankly, just competition on the ground at the moment. Well, that that is fascinating. I mean, funny enough, I was thinking when I was a minister and I used to stay in embassies, you know, staying in the Paris embassy, they had a little wooden box next to the bed, which was tuned to Radio 4. And it took me a while to work out I didn't need to use that box. I could start to use my phone. I mean, for the time being, at least... You know, you must have big audiences now in the US and other places. Yeah, I mean, we haven't even talked about it. I mean, I, I was just chewing on the name dropping of the French embassy, which was impressive, Ed. <laughs> I just have to try and keep up, Tim. I just had a basic hotel, but you know, okay. You know, yeah. you've got a bigger microphone than me. You've got a bigger job. Come on, I've got to keep up. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can't compete with the French embassy. I tell you, I mean, when I lived in the States for a couple of years, it's very interesting. I listened to Radio 4 on a regular basis, yeah. And uh, I, I think, look, there's no doubt about it. And we, we, we've talked about this. In the audio market is fascinating for us, by the way. The, the money, if running BBC Studio has been very blunt about it. We, we always looked at monetization of audio, what technology could bring. Look, there was money to be made to a point, but in terms of versus TV revenues, very small. It was yeah. chump change. I mean, I, and you're talking to someone passionately, who passionately loves radio. But actually, if we looked at it, the benefits of having radio out there, and by the way, we're not thinking of putting the World Service clearly behind paywalls and everything else, but we had all this audio drama, podcast equivalents of the time, the Desert Island Discs, all those things. I think we, we now see a market developed in things, you know, particularly led by the US, where monetization is real. The numbers are looking serious, as you know only too well, and there are, are real op- opportunities for partnership or standalone subscription opportunities in audio and others. Frankly, sitting in my house in Westport, Connecticut, I would have quite happily paid the BBC. I was a soft drinks executive, quite happily paid the BBC quite a lot of money for audio. And I don't think it's just an expat business, by the way. I, I, you know. No, no, I, I think it's a, a domestic business. 
Can I just ask about your relationship with platforms in terms of content? So, you know, we started this conversation talking about distribution and how technology has completely upended distribution. So how do you make the choice between, you know, I've got the iPlayer as my platform for BBC content and I've got the BBC YouTube channel, I've got the BBC Facebook channel, I've mentioned Clubhouse earlier. Is there a BBC kind of play in Clubhouse? I mean, Clubhouse may be finished by the time we finish this podcast, but... How do you choose where you're going to put content on your own platform and partner with other platforms? I have ventured into Clubhouse, but please don't start asking me questions on Clubhouse because I have no <laughs> idea. Firstly, it's interesting. Our instincts are to distribute content and, and get it out there. Yeah, but bear with me. There is absolutely no doubt, and the data is utterly overwhelming, that if you want attribution for your content, it's not just the program, it's the service. I almost say it with heavy heart because it's always if you've got a brilliant program, like just put it out there, get some. But the truth of the matter is people are watching YouTube. You do get some attribution and it's really important. And I'll come to how we should be. We should definitely be on those platforms and doing our thing. But the truth is you want people on your service. And, and, and look, we've got to be honest about that. If you're Netflix, you want people using Netflix. Yeah. It's not, you know, kind of free love here. It's, it's yeah. absolutely you want people on your service. And we know that people loyal to the iPlayer, and we're in a good position here, using BBC content on the iPlayer in the UK is seen as they ascribe value to that. Now, I do think that more and more, and the BBC can keep doing this, or let's say keep doing it, do more of it, I think I'm trying to say. What kind of, forgive the expression, thick promotional content you're doing on YouTube, you know, what kind of things you're putting out there, what kind of return part. And we're talking to Google and there's really exciting ways we can market together. And, and I think actually we should be out there on Insta. We should be doing things. I mean, our programs are, but there's no doubt about it. This needs to be reciprocal. Yeah. You, you know, traffic needs to go both ways Ed. It's not just, you know, just pushing it out there. And I think we need to be strong as local players. And the BBC has got some heft here to say, okay, what's the right partnership deal? Sky's a brilliant platform, other partners. How do we appear on those platforms? Well, these are great discussions we're having with people now. And they're muscular, good, constructive partnerships. Forgive the uh, happy, clappy thing, but there are ways you can win together on that. You know, there really are, where you can premiere something on YouTube, but flip people across. You can be a driver of a platform, say a pay TV platform, potentially deploying technology, because we haven't even talked about broadcast technology. You know, UHD, ultra, you know, ultra, ultra HD. You can use these platforms and partner with them. So, look, the, the idea we're sitting in a walled garden and not wanting to talk to anyone is ridiculous. We, we, we need more partnership, more solutions, more innovation in bringing ourselves together. At the end of the day, it would be, I wouldn't be telling it straight if I didn't say what I really want is people at the end of the day to be coming to our services to get the whole BBC experience. I totally get that. I think one of the uh, USPs of the BBC is news, which is ironically also in terms of domestic politics controversial, but I'm not going down that road. What I was interested by is, is your kind of... I don't, to be fair, Ed, I don't think that bit's controversial, that we're quite important in news and it's central <laughs> to the BBC. It's the next three questions that lead you to deep controversy, but surely we can agree that we, we've got, a, you know, surely we can just agree on that sentence. Anyway, yeah. I totally agree with you on that. But what, what about news? And you, you talk intriguingly about news in a multi-platform world. How, we, how is technology changing the BBC's news gathering business? And also, I think, the kind of other side of that question, which, again, for a policymaker, is, I think, an extremely important part of the technology debate. 
from my perspective, certainly, the BBC plays a crucial role in what technology has done in terms of disseminating disinformation and misinformation. To have a trusted brand and knowing that you're getting the news, not fake news, is is really important. So there are kind of two questions which perhaps are related or not related. <laughs> well, they're all, they're all part. We're, we're swimming in the swim, same swimming pool as we are. But I think the first point is it, it's having a pr- profound implication in terms of news, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's almost mind-boggling. It, it, it goes all the way from the the news cycle of itself, which is, you know, you expect on your phone, speed of delivery, the idea we're waiting for a bulletin now, all of that changes the grammar, the narrative. I worry slightly sometimes the treadmill of news, but that that's everything is threat and opportunity or challenge. But you, you and I know that the whole thing moves so fast that as sometimes an editor or a reporter, you've got so many outlets to fill in terms of this constant need for live streams. So that's changed, that's changed the grammar of news. There's other, th- you know, just specific things that I can think of in terms of obviously user-generated content. You know, the BBC was you know, in the old days. Hello, welcome to the BBC. Microphone like the one I've got here. It was a very managed thing. Now, you know, if you look, at, I can think of two or three stories that are breaking now. You think what's going on in the world in various places. It's often UGC or other things verifying that. We'll come to that in a second on your question too. There's a, there's a load of things going on there that have changed, again, the expectations of speed, what the expectations of quality. The fine thing is, I do think this allows, I mean, the brilliant thing about quality now, it's unbelievable what's happening, which mm. is the, the amount of quality we can get locally from reporters now with the driving costs down, cameras that are much more easy to use. You know, capture now is just you can do things. You can edit on the ground. You're more flexible. You're less office located. Sometimes you can go out there and do things. We've always had broadcast trucks and all of that. Mm. But honestly, it transforms the business. I mean, I'm really interested in the potential. I think we're at the foothills of what this could mean for local reporting, local. Dem- I mean, the issue is the economic models for other players on that and us just getting our budgets into where it makes most difference. But there's huge opportunities for local democracy, local reporting. Technology opens up all these things. Yeah. Do we move a little bit to then the whole uh, kind of the double-edged sword of the social media, the internet, what it means in terms of trust? Yeah. And look, you know, you and I would both, I think, nod along to increase transparency. It's all a good thing to have information out there, all the brilliant things it does. But there's absolutely no doubt it's a massive challenge for us in terms of misinformation. Uh, we face it directly. People, for what it's worth, posting things in our name as the BBC, literally just false deliberately malicious false stuff, other rumours being spread. We are, I mean, this is constant. I don't know if people will recognise the expression whack-a-mole if we're going globally, Ed, but hitting down every challenge. The the thing that seems to be working is we've formed a thing called the Trusted News Initiative, which is lots of partners. So whether it's Reuters, Google, other, I mean, there's a lot of us together. And we're beginning to develop and technology. There's companies in this area that are really interesting. I was talking to someone only last week on this, where AI and other things and proper machine learning can begin to spot things that are going wrong or can act not only spot stuff but if you spotted stuff like we had a fake report about someone dying a a, a politician in a pakistani news source a good news source but it just ran we use technology to issue an alert across all players quickly stopping that story yeah and we're beginning to use these early alert systems by the way i think this will be an area that grows it's going to be a constant battle. Everyone's at it. But 
it's a grade A issue for us because we need, I mean, you know, in this role I'm doing, number one priority is if people don't trust our news, you know, we can't go forward. It's, it's impartial, trusted news source. We've, we've got teams on this. We've even got disinformation reporters who are looking at some of these areas like, you know, vaccination, other areas where we'll go into it and really dig into the facts. And we, we, have, we have a role as a public service provider in this to talk about it. So that is amazing because I think, you know, it wasn't what I was expecting in terms of the kind of technology companies that the BBC now has to interact with, which is basically the kind of technology companies that come up with tools to be the eyes and ears on the internet to work out using machine learning, probably through language processing, whether a report is fake or has an element of truth in it. And that kind of leads me on to my kind of last topic that I want to take a deep dive in. I also want to go off on a few tangents as well. But traditionally, uh, and in fact, when you were heading BBC Studios, you know, the BBC, when it kind of dipped its toe in the commercial world, it was let's take a stake in a TV production company. That's pretty Mm. straightforward and easy to understand. Now, in theory, you've got this landscape of tech companies that could potentially help your business like disinformation scouring tech companies, machine learning, AI, data companies. Is there a role for the BBC in, in becoming effectively a kind of startup investor? Is that, is that a crazy thing to say? Is, is there something in that? I don't know. There you go. You know, we've got an opinion on everything, but I think we've got to think <laughs> about this. So if you think about kind of what's close in on us, broadcast technology, where that works, classic, you mentioned the microphone at the top, I think there's an area for that for us, which is how do you develop core broadcast and our R&D teams working on that? I, I think we can play a real role in that and, 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 and being early stage developers in that and how we work with other people is core for us. I, I do think there's incredible opportunities for us to partner with technology companies. But I would say, I think this is, if you're a 5 billion revenue operation, and there'll be many people listening to it, millions of people listening, I'm sure, about higher revenues, lower revenues. But it does mean, I'm going to get to go for the old cliche here, which is picking your, picking your battles. And I do think we're a con- primarily a content company. I think we need expertise in D2C and we need to be brilliant at curation in that and understanding our audiences. Mm-hmm. I suspect if I've got capital, I want to be investing in my core areas more than probably early steps. I mean, I have to say this, you and I know it very well, but the scene in London is pretty vibrant in terms of, you know, early stage tech. I mean, we could debate the second stage, third round, fourth round and exit and all that. But mm. actually, one of the things the BBC can do brilliantly, finally on this, is we can be, this isn't misplaced because there's some self-interest in it, but a generosity of spirit about being often the, a place where people can try, try a technology or play with something so that, frankly, they get us on their CV and work with them. And I think we're, we're doing that with hundreds of businesses where, just like early stage indies, their first project was us in terms of developing a production. I think in some of these areas, like to exactly to a point, like misinformation, you know, using AI and curation, we can be a great partner. So under my leadership, I would hope that we become an amazing partner. Whether we're going to equity investment in, tech, in the tech sector per se, outside the area of media, need some convincing. Well, amazingly, you just answered what was going to be my next question, but I'm going to ask you to answer it again, because it was sort of, I had originally going to ask you, you know, how can the government help, which is a terrible question to ask you, because obviously the debate with government is straightforward about the future of the license fee and indeed the size of the license fee. But one thought that did occur to me, which you've sort of answered, but I'd just like you to go back to it and just flesh it out a tiny bit more, is 
you know, I was thinking about this kind of sandbox role because, you know, the Financial Conduct Authority, for example, now has a global reputation because it became a sandbox for fintech companies. And what you're saying, I think, should perhaps be better known and almost more formalized that the BBC could be the kind of media content sandbox for emerging tech companies in the UK. That's a service that you can give back if you like, which is a win-win for the BBC. But also the government can say, we've got the BBC and it's actually providing a, a key, it's a key part of the ecology for the startup content community in the UK. And critically, but well, uh, just to add a dimension to that, because I agree with you entirely, is Pan UK. I mean, I'm also chair of the Creative Industries Council, where we're looking at what was stimulate the, the one thing about the creative industries is they can you can create hubs as you know beyond the M25 in London in London here you can go to areas and really I mean t- the one thing we haven't really talked about is the amazing democratic effect of technology once it, once you've got proper fiber connection you've got things you can build those businesses don't need to relocate you know in the old days to get into the media industry you know a lot of people felt you had to go to Soho and work in an editing suite you know now you can edit. <laughs> in a garage to the quality you could do in Wardle Street, yeah? And I think that's really interesting for us, which is we can be a sandbox, which is pan-UK based. We've got a very good footprint around the UK. And, you know, from a creative industries point of view, there are very specific things like, you know, tax credits, as you know, you can very much, uh, not along to this one, Ed, but as you know, but, you know, tax credits for high-end production has been revelationary in terms of uh, how it's driven money in. R&D tax credits now, could they be applied more to the creative industries? That directly relates to what you're talking about. These are, these are the real, this is the deep engineering of really driving economic growth, which is the application of those incentives. So you ask me what government can do, R&D tax credits being applied, we, we have it in this discussion, which is really, really powerful. There's things like apprenticeships, skill, skill gaps. How do we work with that? How do we help SMEs get apprenticeships when actually that can be quite tough most of the creative industries, it's, I think, three or 400,000 companies, but most is under 10 people. They're little businesses starting up, all of those things. And with your, with your CV, which we didn't do at the beginning, you know, you know that as much as anyone. I, I think all these are areas where we can work together. And then the BBC is really committed to that. I mean, one of the things I'm laying out for the future is how more of our money flows throughout uh, into the creative economy. There's no v- version of the, of the BBC which isn't accretive to the tech industry, the creative industries, that doesn't work, I think, for the BBC. So one of the things, uh, I think that's all right. I mean, I, I think that's all brilliant. I mean, I, I would say that there needs to be a kind of big front door for tech companies to work with the BBC. If I was starting a media tech company now, I wouldn't know where, who to call as it were, or who to email, who to text at the BBC. So I don't know if that's something that I've missed, but that would be something that I think would be fantastic. And the other thought I had was internally in the BBC, do you have to, just as you, in order to produce the content that the world needs from the BBC, you now, because of the global tech giants, need to kind of cooperate, work with companies like Netflix. When you're hiring the talent that's going to make these things work, you know, previously you were hiring great uh, producers and directors. Now you have to hire great data scientists. Do you have to do that now? Do you, do you have to do that with ITV and Channel 4? Do you have to say, look, we've got to hire a data scientist that's going to cost a quarter of a million let's share the cost? Do you have to start thinking about a kind of back office that's shared between domestic broadcasters? Maybe. I hadn't thought about it. Maybe. There might be. I mean, clearly, we're definitely in a battle, by the way. And the battle's on two fronts, by the way. It's retention. You know, I think the BBC has been brilliant developing talent. We've got a fantastic design engineering team, as they're called. And 
we got two issues, by the way, in areas like Salford, actually filling vacancies was and is a challenge in terms of how we ensure that we're working. I mean, I, I really want to do more work with further education uh, kind of colleges on technology degrees, craft skills. So actually supply is one thing. Retention is interesting. I mean, I do think, you know, there's no doubt about it. We lose people and the amount of churn, is that terrible corporate word, but churn we get in the tech function is higher than other areas of the BBC. It's really, really competitive. It's red hot out there. If you're at a certain point in your career, you can see, you know, we don't do stock options. We do, we, but we do other, I think there's other things. I mean, we are purpose-driven. We we are for everyone. There is we have a we have a societal role, and I, I think that does count for a lot of this talent. By the way, is you can't get everyone like that, but there are there's a very very good set of quite brilliant people who are motivated. I mean, look at your own career choices, Ed. Motivated by pub, you know, but doing something public publicly that that counts. And yeah. Tammy, we don't have to have I don't have to have someone for thirty years. If we if we had someone for ten years and contributed built functionality for the iPlayer, sorted out some of our production technology, and then that person goes on to great things. I think the thing we should be slightly worried about is how much of that talent is generating IP that's driving the UK economy and driving for the UK as opposed to just disappearing beyond our borders. That's a broader question. But no, I, I, look, it's, it's a right old battle is the answer, Ed, and we're fighting, we're fighting a good fight. I think we're in a reasonably good shape as the BBC. We're a good place to work. Okay, last question, which is just a sort of dinner party question-ish. But, you know, I've been around long enough. I remember when Sky displayed 3D football. And for the first time I saw it, I thought, God, this is going to be, this is amazing. This is like watch, this is like being in the bar in Star <laughs> yeah, Wars. Yeah, yeah. And then the second time I watched it, I thought, actually, this is not going to work. <laughs> People yeah. are not going to watch, put on glasses to watch 3D football. I've never been convinced by VR, virtual reality as an entertainment medium. I'm sort of getting there with, AR as an entertainment medium. And you've thought already about, you know, potentially they're watching the television in, in your driverless cars. Is there any kind of technology, you know, this is me at a dinner party, any technology that you see in three, four, five years time is going to fundamentally change what has been, you know, the screen in the room or now the screen on your lap? I think we're, we're kind of in the right place, in the same place, sorry, which, which is not obvious, not, doesn't make for the best Dinner does it sometimes. <laughs> Although in the UK, we, we, at the moment, we're going to have dinner in the freezing cold, so any conversation <laughs> will warm us up. But, but I think, I mean, we're, we're broadly the same. But I, I think the, by the way, I think the effort of trying 3D and playing and doing all these things, I, I, being wholly dismissed. I, I'm not I, you're in the same place. But mm. if I was doubling down, I think AR. I think the idea of, you know, for instance, how much data do we expect in sports coverage? How many angles? Yes. Nice control. That is becoming a real thing. Right. So, so I think what's interesting is control. Sorry. So how far will that go? And this balance between having a broadcast commentary and an angle versus the ability to go to, I mean, I find the amount, if you look at football, it's ridiculous now. You look at, we're now saying the assist, you know, just simple level, assists, who run. I mean, you know, before we didn't have any of that, and it's just become normal Look where US sport has gone with data. And I just come to sport because often sport can be a little, pathfinder for some of these yes i think ar that data what do you expect what's literally augmented beyond something is incredibly interesting it, for, obviously for commercial operators that's limitless possibilities of buying which we've been at for a few years in buying what you see and all of that but actually in terms of for any broadcast what level of information the idea you can draw down information will i be watching sports fixtures from the viewpoint of 
Crystal Palace goalkeeper who's always busy, or will I, <laughs> or, or will I be watching it? You know, I think Ed, that's where I think it will be a big change. I think we'll probably also just we, we will see UHD be all pervasive, but there comes, isn't there? Comes a point where it's so beautiful and the technology is so good that I just I don't know. I, I'm not the expert here, but I'll probably max out. Tim Davey, you've answered my question. You're not a politician. You've answered my question. So I called it the dinner party question because obviously when we go out for dinner again, I'll be able to say, look, I, I did this podcast with Tim Davey and I asked, him, I asked him what the next big technology was going to be. And you know what he said? He said it was control. Think about that. It's about contr- how much control does the viewer have over content? And I think that is a really, really interesting idea. So it's the perfect note to end on because obviously a great journalist, which I'm not would now delve into control but control i think is a great word to leave with in terms of how technology is changing content so thank you very much tim job done thank you very much (laughs) case closed thanks for listening to this episode of the vasey view a production of kindred media